The Strategic Hot Box with Dr. Brandy Love Stankovic. Discussing leadership, business, and how to take control of your life and achieve greatness. From the streets of Las Vegas, energized, informed, and never diluted. It's time to kick some ass. Hey, it's your girl, Dr. Brandy Stankovic. We're here on the Hotbox, and it's only taken us three years to have a conversation about marijuana. Ooh. So today's episode is about banking marijuana. And finally, finally, we have a conversation about marijuana here on the Strategic Hotbox. Let's get started. We are going to bring in a very special guest named Katrina Skinner, who's going to talk to us a little bit about Safe Harbor and banking marijuana. And she is doing a lot in that effort and helping individuals stay safe and banking in a safe way and, and being able to deposit and utilize funds in a safe way because the marijuana industry is an interesting one these days. Lots of companies and entrepreneurs over the years have broken rules and rules to in business and rules to create disruption and innovation, You know whether it's like a VRBO or an Uber. And how many businesses do you know that uh, knowingly break federal laws? Now, they might initially Initially, but not many do it and then get away with it in ongoing, right? But there's certainly, when it comes to marijuana, that all in, all of these businesses that are doing that are essentially uh, doing breaking some federal laws because that there is some some uh, ancient or some legacy laws, I should say, in place when it comes to marijuana legislation. And there's certainly a stigma associated with it as well. Uh, hence, anything Cheech and Chong. Whenever I think about, uh, yes, Cheech and Chong, I think about my dad's old records. Maybe, did, should I not have said dad's old records? Anyway, he, he would be totally cool. Uh, dad's old records of Cheech and Chong and that one episode of uh, Officer Stadenko. Do you guys remember that? A Michoacan, a Michoacan. Now, kids. And anyway, so uh, cannabis in general, the cannabis industry is one of the fastest growing industries in the world. And the government, of course, is less fast. And let's just say that 33 states and Guam and Puerto Rico have all legalized use and selling and distribution of marijuana. Now, federally, of course, it's still illegal. And so many of, uh, so much of the money and anybody connected to the industry, anybody doing anything with that industry is considered money laundering. And that that's that's just legit. And, so, and technically it is. So if you are um, doing any business in the, that industry and you are then accepting deposits or you are accepting any cash that comes from those businesses, it is essentially money laundering. And that's, that's, tough because it's a $10.4 billion industry in 2018. So what does a business like that do with all of that cash? And because organizations like Visa and some others aren't ready to enter that market or are saying that they won't, it isn't a plastics driven market. It is a cash driven market. And so how safe is it for your community to be in cash? What does that even mean? And no matter what your stance is, so even if you support legal marijuana or not, do you recognize that all the dispensaries are dealing 100% in cash? That's almost as bad as the dude with the backpack because if they, you know that that location has that much cash. And so, so do criminals, right? And so luckily there are companies out there willing to take the risk to make it safer for communities and business owners um, to work within this cannabis industry. So I want to... 
uh, have a conversation or or continue a conversation that I had or, or share with you an interview that I recently had with Katrina Skinner about the banking industry and safe harbor services and what she does to help individuals. Now, Katrina is the president and general counsel of Safe Harbor Services. She provides and their organization provides turnkey solutions for financial institutions that want to enter the cannabis banking area. And so if you are in that or thinking about that or know somebody wants to, this is a good organization to reach out to. Safe Harbor has withstood 12 federal and state regulatory exams and banks approximately $200 million per month in cannabis-related banking. Bachelor, she's got a bachelor's in history, minor in Spanish from Metropolitan State University. She's got her Juris Doctor from the University of Denver and Sturm College of Law. She's fantastic and she was uh, just great to, to listen to and the stories that she has, but it was also kind of fun to dig in with her and try to get her to tell me all the goodness that it is in this, in this industry. But it was also fascinating how much I could learn from somebody like Katrina of what's going on in this fastest growing market. So let's head out to the interview I recently had. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad that we get to spend some time together. Thank you for having me. And what a relevant topic this is. I feel like this, one, this topic is creeping up everywhere because more and more states are looking at this from a regulatory standpoint, but it's also from a consumer behavior, it's it's less that stigma is shifting somewhat in regards to, is it recreational? Is it socially accepted? Is it neither? Is it, you know, where it is? So tell us a little bit about your journey and how we you ended up to where you are today. Um, it's been a long strange journey, but it's been, you know, awesome. I've learned a ton of stuff along the way. So um, I never thought that I would actually be working with marijuana. I liked marijuana when I first tried it when I was much younger, <laughs> but I never thought, you know, it would become relevant later on. Mm -hmm. But maybe because I wasn't opposed to it is one of the reasons I was willing to step into this this area. Mm -hmm. And, and um, it has been challenged because as long as it remains illegal federally, it has implications with everything you do, including the businesses. And it's one of the most frustrating aspects of being in this business, but also one of the most interesting because it's so full of change. Yeah. So that changes all the time because of, of those regulatory components of it. And that's interesting that you say from a federal, because federal always trumps what's happening on the state level, right? If the federal government chooses to do so, yes. Mm. Yes. And so, but if, so if they choose to step in, they, they, the federal law will trump, but the states are making a lot of headway in what they want to see move forward with marijuana and marijuana related businesses. Sure. So right now with the federal government, I mean, I don't think they're deaf to it. It just is another complicated problem for them to have to address and you'd need mm -hmm. partisan support to do so. And we're seeing some of that right now with like the safe banking act and the states act and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. But um, the states are taking the lead and the public has never been in more favor of legalizing marijuana. I think the last poll I saw, it was about 68% of Americans nationwide mm. um, support the legalization of marijuana. That being said, it's not happening right now. It doesn't seem to be a priority at the federal level. Mm -hmm. So each state is... Um, has the opportunity to put forth a regulatory system that they want that will address their needs and their community needs. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, but because it conflicts with federal law, um, that's the problem. Yeah, who's willing it, to... Yeah, to take those risks, uh, right? 
Yeah. So, and it's not only just willing to do it from the actual black and white legal side, but there's also this entire social stigma. Cause you, and you kind of mentioned it a little bit in the fact that it was something that you tried super early on in life and thus maybe had a bit more of an open mind. And did you ever kind of envision that you would be the person working in marijuana? And, and with that in mind, do you ever find yourself, uh, uh, be throwing disclaimers out there about what it is that you that you do. Um, not often because I I'm not actually in the plant touching part of the business. I'm mm-hmm. in the banking part of it, and I mm-hmm. think that's a little bit different. But even as an attorney, when I first started, um, I had to call my own attorney and say, "Hey, I'm going to assist with a case like this. Can you defend me?" Mm-hmm. Because at that time in Colorado and in several states now, it's against um, the professional code of ethics for attorneys or CPAs to even work in the space. Wow. And so that was my law license and that was my livelihood. And and mm-hmm. so I was worried. I said, not that we would win, but could you defend me? Because I right. figured we'd have a good faith argument, but I see that still. So, I yeah. mean, and it is a challenge. It's mm-hmm. a challenge for even accountants who need to get bank accounts who serve the industry. Right. So it's, it's definitely interesting and I mean, you see certain people are willing to take the risks, but mm-hmm. you have to find workarounds. And one of the most interesting parts of this is that the industry itself is full of risk takers. They are mm-hmm. smart, they're well-funded, they're savvy, mm-hmm. but they move quickly, mm-hmm. right? And and they will find the solutions where the law, the current laws are putting up blocks mm-hmm. and they find workarounds. And so oftentimes we are just running behind them to try to help them and support them and what they're doing. But the reason we do it is to keep the community safe. You know, we want the cash off the streets because Mm -hmm. people are buying it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a billion-dollar industry. Mm -hmm. So where's the money going to go? Not in bags, right? Right. And so will you expand on that a little bit? For anybody that doesn't know, if a person is in any sort of consumer relationship, you're going into any retail place, that retail shop may or may not, depending on the state, be able to get their product from a production plant that's within the state. And that depends on the state, right? Right. And then based on that, then the person that's purchasing has to purchase in cash. That's the way that the, the it works now? Sometimes. most For the most part, yes, it is cash-driven for a couple of reasons. One is that stigma, mm-hmm. that nobody wants people going through their records um, mm-hmm. to see what they're spending their money on, right? So, so that's part of it. The other part is, is because it remains illegal federally, MasterCard and Visa and the credit card companies are not in the space and they're not going to be, from what they've told us, they will not be in it until the laws change. So you need different solutions. So Mm -hmm. there are some closed loop solutions out there. There are solutions that run on the ACH rails so people can buy pin debit cards, that Uh sort of thing, but nothing that's signature based. So, so they have some solutions out there. They're just not as easy. So like you said, if you go into a regular, say 7-Eleven and you buy gas and you buy food and you give them your credit card, easy breezy. Uh-huh. You go into a dispensary, you either have to go to the ATM or you'll be upcharged to use a pin debit product, that sort of thing. So it makes it much more complicated. And so then it's naturally uh, cash-based. So then the retail locations of the dispensaries are then holding a significant amount of cash. If they don't have a bank account. And therein lies the problem because... Um, Even I've, if they do have a bank account, though, receiving... Right. So... Um, it probably depends on the policies at the, the mm-hmm. dispensaries or whatnot, but 
um, through the Safe Harbor program, the one that we we implement, we require um, cash to be picked up by cash couriers or armored carriers. So you don't have nice. cash in the branches yeah. and you don't have cash on site. Yeah. So they have regular pickups and that's the way we try to ensure safety. Yeah, because mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest things I think that that once that perspective is there from a criminal standpoint, from those that are coming in, I mean, that that is it becomes a target almost for. Oh, absolutely. And that's how um, Cindy Seafried, why one of the reasons why she started the Safe Harbor program was in Colorado um, when it first went legal adult use, you would have these operators taking bags of cash. They had special. Um, they called them funk sacks, mm -hmm. and they would keep the odor of the marijuana off the cash, but they would have them on their backs, and they would be buying money orders. So at any given time, you could see um, people buying money orders at Walmart or King Supers, and it was crazy because they had these huge electric bills, like $60,000 a month for the grow lights, and they would be they would have employees who just would stand in line to buy money orders so that they could pay their bills. So at any given time, you could be in the grocery store standing next to somebody who had a backpack full of money, and that's a problem. That's a safety yeah, hazard. No doubt. Yeah. For the employees, for the organization. A, absolutely. Wow. And so then why why is there a fear from a, a credit union or a bank or any sort of financial institution? What's the fear associated with them of getting involved and in offering services to these organizations? I think there's a couple things, but one of the the biggest fears that I see and that I address, and maybe I don't help it, is um the fear that it remains illegal federally. So mm -hmm. the federal government and the federal laws regulate the banking system. So technically, under the current laws, any financial institution that's banking marijuana is engaging in money laundering under the current codes. Wow. Mm -hmm. And when they realize that, nobody wants to be prosecuted for money laundering. And although the federal government has given some guidance on how you can bank it, it still remains illegal. And that's what the Safe Bank Act is designed to do, is take um, financial institutions who want to provide those services out of the definition of money laundering. And mm -hmm. then that, I think, would open up the space. The other problem is the workload. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work in cash-intensive businesses. They mm -hmm. work a lot like... Um, money service businesses, mm -hmm. and it, it creates a lot of stressors on um, the infrastructures of these institutions, and do they want that additional stress? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we were chatting before we came um, in, in the formal setting here, but about uh, in working with an institution I know had been servicing different retail locations or different dispensaries, that the cash itself was hard. Uh, a lot of a lot of credit unions or banks will have coin machines, for example, and those coin machines will get filthy with all the coins and things that happen in, you know, the whatever people put from their pockets yeah. into the coin machine. Right. Well, same is true with cash. I mean, how many hands that it goes through and that type of thing. And so the heavy cash use just has its own realm of additional infrastructure needs. Oh, sure. Definitely. I didn't, um, I had never heard that before about the germs and how dirty the money actually was from, from that aspect. Mm -hmm. But again, the institutions we work with, most of them have cash carriers, so they never even see the cash. It just mm -hmm. picks it up and the cash carriers vault it, count it, and deposit it to the Fed direct. Mm -hmm. So nice. creates safety for the branch and nobody gets all that dirty, yeah, filthy money they, in there. it takes that kind of piece yeah, out of it. Yeah, So if, a, if an organization wanted to, as this becomes more and more legal, as more states are, are pushing this forward, and, and organizations are having to consider this, whether it's a banking institution or other retailers around, anything that they should be considering? Um, 
Right now, they just need to know that it is a lot of work just because of how, with the FinCEN guidance from 2014, how you need to bank it and what you need to do to comply. And although right now um, it can be quite profitable, that I wouldn't suggest that that's the reason you should get into the space. It's more to provide a community service to the underbanked mm -hmm. and ensure that your communities are safe. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, you add back to the local economies because these businesses grow and they're appreciative and they employ other employees. And instead of having to pay in cash, they now have bank accounts, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But you have to know it's a, it's a change in culture. It's very compliance driven mm -hmm. and it's labor intensive right now because it's... Um, Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering. And so be beyond the, the governmental regulation side, is there anything about the culture of this particular industry that's different than other industries you've worked with? Um, as far as like business owners and how they conduct business? No, not so much now because the the industry is is so much more sophisticated than when it first stopped, started. Mm -hmm. So any of those ideas where it's just like a mom and pop shop or the the stoners who have now come out of their basement, that's not how these these operators are. Mm -hmm. They're um, they're well financed. They're again very sophisticated business people. They have sophisticated entity structures. They have teams of advisors, mm -hmm. and they're a very appreciative industry. They mm -hmm. don't, they just are so grateful that they have banking that mm -hmm. most of them are a delight to work with. And they also are very loyal. Like mm -hmm. if, if they get help, mm -hmm. they give back as well. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's a nice group of people to work with. I think the most interesting part is that they are such risk takers and mm -hmm. solution bringers, right? Mm -hmm. Like they can find solutions to anything and ways of doing things that create efficiencies and and workarounds in what is, again, technically an illegal space federally. And isn't that interesting that it almost breeds this individual that is out there courageously trying to, to develop a new path? Oh, absolutely. And those who bank them with financial mm -hmm. institutions now, the ones that I've talked to and the ones I'm working with, those institutions are being typically led by leaders that are very similar to those that are leading in the industry as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And I can also see that that the there's an evolution of the culture in some ways. But it, but in some ways, the stigma, depending on where you are in the United States, I'd imagine, but the stigma has yet to catch up with that evolution. You know, and I think that that's that perception in some ways is what's driving the, the, the slow process of some of the bureaucracy behind it. Oh, absolutely. But I think it's changing because my mother, um, she's 81. She uh -huh. clips newspaper articles and sends them to me about uh -huh. where it's changing and how she thinks little kids who have seizures should have the right to CBD and, and to those type of treatments. And and I know that when my mother's following the story, like you said, the, tide, has to be a good the tide is starting to turn. And I can tell you, with one of the institutions I worked with in, in Florida, actually one of their board of directors, the members of their board of directors, he was anti-marijuana, and we had this discussion one night. But um, I don't know if you know this or not, but, you know, Florida is a stand-your-ground type state. And so he and I were talking, and I said, and he was telling me why he didn't like marijuana. And I said, so I just want to understand this. You would trust your neighbor with a gun, but you wouldn't trust your neighbor with a joint. Like, that makes no sense to me. And mm -hmm. he thought about it, and he said, you're right. Mm -hmm. And that financial institution is going to go ahead and become a safe harbor financial institution oh, wow. and they're going to bank it the right way to make sure because safety was 
their biggest concern. They wanted their community safe. And Mm -hmm. so when people start to think of it that way, usually what I see is everybody thinks it's going to go reefer madness. If it comes legal, everybody's going to be stoned and high, you know. Mm -hmm. And if you come into areas like Las Vegas or Colorado, you just get used to it now. You see the green little square that indicates it's a marijuana shop and, Mm -hmm. you know, but nothing but a thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so you've talked a lot about the fact that there are these, it, there is some federal kind of oversight that could happen. Has that ever come across your plate? Have you ever been, you know, has anybody ever come after you personally or your organization personally? Um, no, but what, no, the, the very first cases that I started with, um, it was very complicated. It was, and this is really interesting. You'll see how banking has started to actually help law enforcement. When I started in this, I had I was brought in on a case when I was in private practice where my client um, was indicted for several felony counts on criminal charges for uh, violations with related to marijuana, and I was brought in to help with um, some asset protection. And it there were investors, and it turned into a bunch of criminal and um, civil lawsuits. And at one point in this um, case, we were just about to settle with an investor when we got word that the feds had come in and seized the money and um, and the grow, the cultivation center, because at the time, this was back in 2013, mm-hmm. they had a secret account at Wells Fargo, and they were taking the money and distributing it to out-of-state investors. And so when the feds came in, they grabbed the money in Michigan, they grabbed the money in Arizona, and they grabbed the money in Colorado, as well as the... Um, cultivation center. And that was my first experience with seizure. And it's very real. They have the right to do it. And so that made a huge difference in the case. But it also made me realize, you know, what could actually happen with this. And that's one of the other hesitancies financial institutions have because under those money laundering rules, they can come in and seize the assets Mm -hmm. under those codes. So everybody's worried. But uh, fast forward to today, last year we had... um, at Partner Colorado, we had a case that was seized or um, an account that was seized as part of another criminal proceeding, Mm -hmm. but they only froze that account. They didn't do all of the marijuana accounts and that let us breathe a little bit easier. And what we've seen as a result of banking in the case that I was the lawyer in um, or one of the lawyers in, they had a very hard time prosecuting our clients because there were no records, right? Mm -hmm. No bank accounts, hard to put all kinds of money order receipts together and prove your case. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, we've had an increase in um, subpoenas from the IRS, subpoenas from law enforcement and search warrants because they can look at the bank records now. So before where law enforcement wasn't our friend, we now work closely with them to ensure that we're aligned on law enforcement objectives. Mm-hmm. And that's that's been another really great outcome to banking cannabis. And that's one of the pieces too, because if there's no bank account, then there's, it's really, there's no tracking mechanism in general. So from an IRS perspective, some of the pieces that you're talking about, it's it, that almost allows the government to keep an eye on things a little better. That's exactly it. And local revenue departments. I mean, the mm-hmm. state wants their share of the revenue that's being generated from these sales. Mm-hmm. How can you tell if they go to pay in cash or Colorado used to not accept cash. Mm-hmm. So how do you pay your taxes if you can't? You stand in line and buy the money orders. Again, I know California was having a problem with that as well. Mm-hmm. So by getting into the banking space and providing banking, um, these governments, everybody can go ahead and, like you said, there's 
there's a way now, a mechanism to ensure that the operators, the licensed cannabis operators are actually paying their share of taxes as well. And that's that's part. I mean, we see that in ITIN numbers with individuals that are not were not born in the United States or immigrants and that kind of thing. You see that with all sorts of these more emerging type industries or individuals or businesses in that they're legitimately trying to follow the rules, sure. trying to be legal, trying to be compliant. And the government makes it sometimes so difficult to do that, that it's easier to just be the dude on the corner selling weed. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's what, where we're going to get is that legalization. I mean, it is helping decrease the black market and, mm-hmm. and that's a great outcome to this. So whether, and that's the other thing about legalization of marijuana, you don't have to smoke it. You don't, right. I mean, it doesn't mandate that it, once it becomes legal, everybody has to do it. It right. just becomes a personal choice at that point, but it, it's happening. It has mm-hmm. been happening for a long time. So we mm-hmm. can either take the illicit money out of the black market and start to work with the white market and Mm -hmm. and try to eliminate that, you know, and makes a difference. So do communities play a role in all of this? If you've built your career and you've really been working in in depth with this in in this industry, have communities played, people working together, how has that helped and in in growth? Um, Oh, definitely. I I honestly think that Colorado has um, a very successful marijuana market, right? I think one of the reasons that that was is the case is because they had banking through Partner Colorado Credit Union. It allowed them to grow their businesses in a legitimate way, stabilize, and we saw a lot of consolidation in the market, right? Mm-hmm. But you'll see it in different communities, and I'm seeing this nationwide, is some communities are more supportive than the others, right? Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Even um, we were talking before about Michigan. Certain communities and townships have opted out of having a provisional center there. But they can now have delivery. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I always say up in Michigan, it's coming. It's going to be in your community, whether you want it or not. You don't want the cash there. That's where the robberies are. That's where the chance for theft and Mm -hmm. crime occurs. So better to, you know, come up with, to me, some practical solutions such as banking, Mm -hmm. you know, than to leave, because these people will come up with their own solutions. Absolutely. If you could leave everybody listening and watching today with a bold action item or a, a takeaway, what would that be? Um, to stay open to change. This one, this industry has taught me to be nimble and, and accept what I can't change and find solutions on, um, on problems that maybe in a traditional market you would think through and they seem easy. Whereas this, um, this industry has taught me to be creative and also persistent, like just be open to change because change, at least in this industry, is going to come. And I know it comes everywhere in life, but in this industry, it's more in our face day to day. You know, you never know what's going to happen. It's inevitable. Yeah. I love it. And if people wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Um, the best way would be to go to our website, and that's um, safeharborforbusiness.com. And there's a, a contact us and just send the email. We have a team of specialists who are there. And if they, either if you're a licensed cannabis related business, or if you're a financial institution who would like a turnkey solution because you want to bring solutions to your community, that's how we would do it. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing so much information with you, with us and everybody listening. I loved getting to know you and learning more about weed. Well, uh, thank you. (laughs) And if you have any other questions, you know where to find me. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Norris. I'm in Jamaica, listening to Brandy on the Hot Box. Yeah, man. <laughs> 
someone better to take us and round us out in a banking marijuana episode than our friend from Jamaica. Yeah, man. So thank you for our shout from Jamaica and Norris. And thank you again to Katrina for sharing some of your wisdom with us. It is time for us to head out to our top five kick ass when it comes to banking marijuana and also going into this type of industry. First is to, as a leader, even if you are taking a stance against or for marijuana or other more uh, businesses that, that have both sides, that something that's a little bit more edgy or has a stigma or creates controversy, <clears throat> excuse me, consider breaking the rules in your leadership. How can you as a leader not always follow the path of the people that came before you? That we have to be willing to break some rules and push boundaries. Number two, <coughs> excuse me, innovate in the gray area. When there is a gray area, it's because people haven't necessarily taken a stance or the gray areas when people don't necessarily know. And so how can you enlighten them? How can you take a flashlight and show people what's happening in that gray area? How can you educate the people that are around you? How can you you know, guide people along the way or innovate to show people that this is what's happening? In the stories that Katrina was sharing with us, that the, 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 entrepreneurs and business owners that are within this cannabis industry, if they're told no, they'll find a way to make some of these things happen. If there's a roadblock in their way, they'll go around it. And that's one of the most innovative things that there is. It's a problem solving innovative technique. And that's what this is all about and innovate in the gray area. Number three is don't perpetuate the stigma. If in fact there is something that's out there that that we create that that you're holding over somebody's out, oh, you work in marijuana, then it's suddenly you're you're elevating that stigma. And so I think that that I I really believe in the fact that uh, any sort of um, when you look down on somebody, any sort of uh, stigma, any sort of, of harassment, any sort of discrimination, any sort of negativity that we put on other individuals, labels, stigmas, et cetera, all come when we do that. And so the more that as individuals that we don't even recognize that they're there, that we don't even recognize that other people do it, that we don't live into them, even if we're in the minority, even if we live in the stigma, to not even recognize it, label it, give it time and attention, we won't perpetuate that message. And so so the idea is if you live in this industry, if you support it, if you support marijuana or not, we don't necessarily want cash businesses out there. So how can we support our community? And that would be the stance. Number four is serve the underserved. And that's definitely the stance that Katrina has taken in her business is this isn't safe. And, and this, she's creating a safe harbor for organizations and for these business owners to go to be able to give their, their dollars into the system. And number five, to go green. And I'm just going to let that one just sizzle in your brain for a little bit and just you take it however you want to. Number five is go green. There's your top five. Kick ass. Thank you again to Katrina for being here with us. And thank you to our friends from Jamaica for sending us the shout out. And thank you to all of you for being here and part of it. And this actually, this topic was a request from one of our listeners that that reached out and said, hey, we want to we want to have a conversation around marijuana, what's occurring in the marijuana industry and the fact that it's growing. We also want to have a conversation around the fact that it's not really ethical and yet it is. And how do we approach it in business? Because if we do 
approach it objectively? How do we go around that as, as leaders and, and not necessarily take a stance from a professional perspective? And how can you do that and separate that professionally and personally? And that's an important topic to do. And so I hope that uh, Katrina pr- was able to provide that perspective for you. So please keep those topics coming in to us. And you can send us additional ones, podcast at strategichotbox.com, email, or head out to our website, strategichotbox.com, or any of the social platforms as well Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, anywhere. Hit us up at Brandy Love or at strategichotbox. Until I see you again, get out there and kick some ass. <laughs>